Hey everyone, it's Megan, the Family Finance Mom, adding a new weekly segment to Finance Explained. Now, in addition to the weekly deep dive episodes each season, I'll be posting Q&A replays two times a week. I host these sessions live on Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. over on Instagram. If you'd like to have your questions answered, look for the question box in my stories ahead of each session or join live and ask in the comments. But to make it easier for you to listen to the replays on the go, in segments, and at your convenience, you can now listen here. But first, this week's episode is brought to you by the Family Finance Mom Economic Workshop Series. So many of you have asked for more formal education on specific topics, and now you have it. The Economic Workshops are a series of six hour-long sessions each on a specific economic topic to grow and deepen your financial and economic literacy and give you the confidence to make solid financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your future. If you've ever wondered, is this a good time to buy a house, change jobs, save more, invest more, start a new business? Should I be taking a big risk right now or maybe I need to be more cautious? Understanding how the economy works as well as the state of the current economic environment as a whole, can help you form more informed decisions on all of the above. The Economic Workshop Series will arm you with all the economic know-how you need to do exactly that. The first workshop, What is a Recession?, covered the economic cycle and how recessions are a natural part, and fortunately the shortest part, of the cycle. We talked about leading and lagging economic indicators, past recessions, and more. The full replay is available now. The second workshop, What is Economics? Scarcity, the Free Market, Supply and Demand, will be live February 23rd and is open for enrollment now. You can participate in the live workshop or catch the replay at your convenience. Each workshop includes 45 minutes of instruction followed by your questions. Choose the topics you want to learn more about or save money and get all six sessions with the Economic Workshop Bundle, including immediate access to January's workshop replay on recessions. Visit FamilyFinanceMom.com or the link in today's show notes for details. Hey, Family Finance Moms, happy Wednesday. Welcome, welcome. For those who are new, I'm Megan, the Family Finance Mom. And twice a week on Monday and Wednesday, I hop on for about half an hour here on Instagram live to answer as many of your personal finance and economic and market news questions as I can. Um, And I do start with the questions that people submit in the question box uh, that you'll find in my stories the night before. But as always, if you're here watching live, you're always welcome to ask questions and make comments as we go along. I do post these replays both here on Instagram and my video feed. And now I also post the replay in its entirety. You can find it um, on my podcast, Finance Explained. And you can also find segments of individual questions on YouTube as well. So with all that being said, I will go ahead and get started with the questions from last night. Hmm, let's see. Oh, there we go. First question. If most actively managed funds don't outperform the S&P 500, why does anyone invest in them? So this is a really great question. Um, And where it comes from, we kind of talked about this on Monday, is that many, many studies over long periods of time continue to demonstrate that on average, 
most active managers and especially individual investors simply do not beat the market over the long run. In any given year, you may have some funds that might outperform the market, but year in, year out over an extended period of time, fewer and fewer people are able to kind of keep up with that. There are very few Warren Buffetts of the world, for example. Um, and so why do people still pursue that as an outlet? Why are they willing to pay higher fees for active managers? Um, the reality is, is that most of us tend to be in denial about our own kind of abilities. Nobody wants to be average, right? Everybody thinks that they can beat things. Everybody wants to be competitive. Um, it's somewhat an element of human nature. Um, women actually tend to fare better when they invest in the stock market, not as a whole, but because we are more conservative, um, we tend to trade less, we tend to be more patient, um, and maybe be just a little bit less competitive. But generally speaking, the reason that people still will pursue an active fund or will try to stock pick on their own is because they think they're better than everybody else and they think they can beat the market. That's really what it boils down to. Um, it's not, <coughs> excuse me, it's not sort of a great marketing pitch to be like, hey, you wanna be average? Because the reality is, is that average actually wins out over the long run when it comes to investing. But most of us don't wanna sign up or subscribe to just being average. Um, and that's really, honestly, kind of what it boils down to from a human behavior element. Um, and if it's something you kind of want to better understand, again, I'll kind of give a pitch for our FFM book club this quarter. The Bogle effect goes into kind of this whole discussion a lot. Um, the other thing that I will also point out is that many, many people's most investment exposure for kind of the average person is through their retirement fund. And many retirement funds like 401ks will offer you a predetermined list of investment options. And up until more recently, a lot of those options were only active managed funds. So you were limited to here's this preset list of call it 25 funds that you can invest in. Um, and sometimes they were higher fee and more actively managed. Um, over time, because of things like the low fee passive index funds that Vanguard offers, more of those offerings have been made available through um, 401k and retirement funds because employees were like, hey, I'm not going to put money in my 401k when I can get a lower fee option elsewhere. And so that's kind of started to see those proliferate and become more available through like employer sponsored retirement plans. But that's kind of another reason as well. Uh, but great question, and I hope that um, gives you some insights there. Uh, okay, next question. Inflation rate. The rate of inflation slowed or actually fell? It's so confusing. Okay, so let me kind of try to explain the different pieces of this, and I'm going to try to do it kind of in dollar terms um, because I think that's easier to understand. If we think about where we were kind of in December of 2019, when there were sort of rumors of coronavirus, but nobody really knew the extent to which the impact would be, at least not on a widespread basis yet. And we're all just going about our own lives. And let's say that at that point in time, we could fund our household budget with $100, okay? So that's in 2019. Fast forward to the end of 2020, inflation is kind of normal, and I'm not gonna remember all these numbers exactly off the top of my head, I'm just gonna kind of use broad numbers to um, keep it simple. But let's say that at the end of 2020, 
Um, inflationists call it around, you know, we're starting to see inflation tick up, but it's not kind of really, really significant yet. And so let's call it inflation ended the year at like three to 4%. So now instead of it costing us $100, it's costing us $104 to fund everything in our house. We're not buying more, we're not buying anything different, it's just getting the same stuff, but now it's costing us $4 more. Fast forward to the end of um, 2021, and inflation has ticked up even further. And now it's, call it, and again, I'm making this up to keep it simple, but it's accelerated and now it's more like 7%. So instead of it costing you $104 to pay for everything in your house, inflation has accelerated, meaning the rate of price growth is higher. So instead of it being, you know, the normal 2% or that starting to get faster 4%, it's now 7%. And so, and I'm not gonna be able to do this math in my head, but it's the 104 times one plus that 7% growth rate. And so now you're talking, okay, it's probably gonna cost you something like $112. Again, you're not buying anything more. You're just buying all that you normally buy, but it's costing you, you're now at $12 more than where we were in 2019. Now fast forward to the end, and that's at the end of 2021. Now fast forward to the end of 2022. Um, now inflation is six and a half percent. So it's not as fast as it was kind of at its peak. It has started to decelerate, meaning it's still growing, um, meaning prices are still increasing, but not quite as fast as they were kind of where peak inflation was before the Fed started hiking rates to bring it down. Um, but it's still six and a half percent. It's come down a little bit. And when I say come down, prices aren't coming down the rate at which prices are growing is coming down. And we need that growth rate to slow even further. So when we talk about slowing, it means the rate of growth is less, but that doesn't mean prices are less. Prices are still growing. So we now have that six and a half percent. So what cost us $112 at the end of 2021, at the end of 2022, that's gonna cost us, um, call it $120 now. So if you think about it kind of in those terms, since the end of 2019, we've basically seen, and again, I've made these numbers up off the top of my head, but they're kind of directionally accurate. It's costing us roughly $20 more, so 20% more because inflation compounds, it's additive year on year, so each year, just like when you invest in those returns compound, inflation works the same way. So if we compare what everything we're buying today, all the same groceries, um, if you were paying rent, if you didn't have kind of a fixed mortgage housing costs, um, your utilities, uh, putting gas in your car, um, what it costs if you have to go visit the doctor, um, what it costs if you need to go get your car repaired, what it's costing for dry cleaning, all of those things that you spend money on is costing you on average about 20% more today than pre-pandemic. That's kind of the way to think about it. And so let's talk specifically about inflation that came out yesterday. Um, inflation came out yesterday, said year over year, so that means comparing January of 2023 to January of 2022, that basket of goods and services, everything that the average household buys, um, costs 6.4% more 
than it did in January of 2022. Now, if we look at what that number is relative to December, there was some deceleration. So that means that in December, that number was 6.5%. In January, it's 6.4%. So it slowed down a little bit, but prices are still increasing. They're just increasing at a slightly slower pace. Um, and then the other thing that is kind of a concern is that that deceleration, so going from 6.5% to 6.4%, is a moderation or deceleration from what we had seen kind of in the second half of 2022. I think at its peak, and I may not remember exactly off the top of my head, at peak inflation, we were looking at 9% annual, you know, year over year comparisons. And so we kind of had a much steeper decline. So we went from 9% to 6.5% in December over the course of like a couple of months. And then to only have it drop by 0.1% in a month um, is a slowing of that deceleration. So if people were hoping kind of for every month to see it drop by 0.5%, that is not happening. And so that tells you that, well, maybe the Fed needs to hike rates more in order to rein inflation in more. So I think where people get tripped up is that as long as the inflation number is positive, so as long as it is a positive growth rate, because remember inflation is growth in prices. It's comparing prices this year to prices last year. And as long as that is a positive number, that means prices are still increasing. If the number is negative, that is deflation, and that rarely happens. Um, the only time we've seen deflationary periods is in kind of like severe prolonged recessions. Um, we did see some deflation in uh, 2008, kind of during at the height of the Great Recession. Um, we did see a little period of deflation at the very, very beginning of the pandemic when we had kind of supply mismatches, um, you know, where we had things like restaurants who are prepared for people to come in and they're no longer coming in. So they're bagging up all of their bulk groceries and splitting them up to sell to people because grocery store shelves are empty, as an example. Um, but again, deflationary periods tend to be very short-lived. So what we want to see is continued deceleration, meaning a decline in the growth rate, but a decline in the growth rate is still growth. It's still prices increasing. We just wanna see them increasing at a slower pace. Uh, so I hope that that answers your question and clarifies some things. Um, and in this replay of this question on YouTube, I'll try to also incorporate some graphs that depict what I was verbally trying to describe. So I hope that that helps. Um, let me know if you guys still have questions kind of about, you know, understanding inflation in the terms. But generally speaking, when people are talking about the rate of inflation, it's a growth rate, right? And so as long as it's positive, that means growth and prices are still increasing. We just want to see that growth rate be lower. And so as that growth rate declines, um, that means inflation is decelerating. Prices are still growing, but they're growing at a slower rate. So I hope that that helps. Um, okay, next question. Pros and cons to open accounts where funds are versus a third-party brokerage. As an example, Vanguard with VT, SAX, etc. Okay, so this is a really good question. Um, and it's actually something that I talked about with my interview with Eric Balkunis, who's the author of The Bogle Effect. 
And that interview will be up and out on the podcast um, in early March, around the time we start kind of our book club discussion. Uh, but here's kind of what to know is that now you can often access kind of almost any fund through any broker. Some brokers, in order to attract people to their platform, will make kind of customer-only funds available. So you might have somebody like a Vanguard make their no-fee index fund available only to people using the Vanguard platform. Or Fidelity might have a no-fee index fund that's only available to people investing on Fidelity's platform. They might then have different versions of that fund that have a small management fee that is available to everybody else, as an example. But generally speaking today, you can access just about any fund through any platform. So I can be on Fidelity and I can buy Vanguard funds through Fidelity. I can be at Charles Schwab and I can buy Fidelity or Vanguard funds through Charles Schwab. One of the things that we did talk about is the fact that because Vanguard has always been very low fee, they have tended to underinvest in customer service. And so there are some people who prefer to use something like Fidelity because they like their dashboard, their customer service interface. Um, when they call, they have better access to customer service than being at Vanguard itself is one of kind of the complaints that Vanguard gets sometimes. Um, but generally speaking, to your point, really the pro is that there are some select funds that may only be accessible to people that are using that broker. But generally speaking, now you can kind of invest in just about anything from just about any asset manager via any brokerage platform. So I hope that that helps. The one thing that I would kind of um, caution people on is I do think that it is easier, simpler, more straightforward. You have better transparency and visibility kind of at what your portfolio looks like by having everything at one broker. And as long as it's like a reputable broker, like a Fidelity, like a Vanguard, um, you know, somebody that has been around for a long time, um, you know, it's not something I worry about significantly, but that's going to give you, you know, if you have, even if you have like your 401k, you might have an IRA, you might have a Roth IRA. Um, if you can have that all in one place, those dashboards give you the visibility to kind of aggregate it all and see it all at once in one location. Um, and I do think that there are benefits to that for, um, you know, especially if you're managing your own portfolio and things like that. So I hope that that helps and I hope that um, addresses your question about the pros and cons about, you know, where you're at and buying funds from various places. Okay, this is the last question that was submitted, so we should have some time to take live questions as well. It says, why haven't we officially declared a recession? So this is a question that's come up a lot over, call it like the last six to nine months. Um, here's the, the fact or the, the real answer is that we as individuals or Wall Street analysts or, um, you know, various pundits who talk about and, you know, predict these things, none of us have the authority or the power to officially declare a U.S. recession. That power resides with a um, organization called the National Bureau of Economic Research. Um, they are a nonpartisan organization that has been around since, you know, back to post Great Depression. 
Um, and they are the ones that kind of monitor all this economic data and they officially declare the start and end of economic downturns. What you should know is that it typically takes a good, on average, eight to 12 months for them to come out and announce that a recession has officially begun. And when they do that, they'll say, it'll sound something like this. If they came out tomorrow and said, we are officially in a recession, they will actually be like, and oh, by the way, the peak of economic activity was actually eight months ago and we've been living in a recession for the last eight months. Um, it's kind of how it works for them. And they're looking at a host of different factors. Historically speaking, the unofficial definition of a recession is two consecutive quarters of, GDP, of real GDP decline. And we actually saw that happen in 20, what year are we in? In 2022. So last year at the start of the year, we did have two consecutive quarters of economic GDP, real GDP decline, meaning absent inflation, growth in the value of goods and services across the entire US economy was less than the quarter before. And so you had many people saying, okay, isn't this a recession? But there were other things that like kind of weren't consistent with the recession, like the strength of the labor market, which was still recovering kind of post pandemic and which remains extremely tight. And so they didn't come out and say that there has been a recession yet. It is something that people continue to monitor. I think the fact that we're now seeing declines in actual corporate earnings is a strong indicator that we may be headed for a recession. Um, and to the extent that we continue, if we continue to see um, any degradation in the tightness of the employment market, that is likely to push us further towards the likelihood of, of a recession. I think most experts continue to predict that there's going to be some type of economic slowdown in 2023. The question, and I think the big question mark that people have where there's the most uncertainty is kind of the level of severity and how long it lasts. Um, and that is really what the Fed is grappling with as well. Um, and the reality is, is that we do need the tightness in the labor market to alleviate in order for inflation to fully alleviate. And the reason for that is that our economy is a largely service-driven economy. Most of consumer spending is no longer on goods, it's on services. And the price of services is driven by wages because service, the cost of services largely comes from wages in order to provide those services. So if wages from a tight labor market are continuing to rise, prices for those services are continuing to rise, and then that has an inflationary effect, and it kind of becomes a vicious cycle. So absent kind of the labor market tightness alleviating, it's unlikely that we're going to be able to rein in inflation as quickly as we hope. So more probably than you were bargaining for and asking your question, but that's kind of who officially declares a recession. And so until they do that, we can all you know, prognosticate, predict, guess. Um, and there are many indicators that point towards the fact that our economy is slowing down. Um, there are many indicators that point towards like this isn't sustainable and there needs to be a decline in order for things to be like more rational, more normal. Things like peak consumer credit, um, things like interest rates on consumer credit at all time highs. like. People can't keep putting money on credit cards. They're going to be tapped out. Things like consumer spending exceeding income and savings rates at near all-time lows. Those things are not sustainable. 
Um, and it's being driven by the fact that like wages, the increase in wages is not keeping pace with inflation and people have been keeping up with it by depleting their savings and racking up credit card bills. So all of that is unsustainable, which leads you to believe that there's going to have to be a pullback in consumer spending, which typically is what leads us into um, economic downturns. So I hope that that helps kind of explain the bigger picture. If this is something you want to understand in greater detail and kind of what happens through an economic recession, how different things move, um, things like what happens to unemployment, what happens to incomes, what happens to home prices, and looking both like historically um, as well as kind of where we're at now, the January economic workshop called What is a Recession goes through all of that in great detail. That replay is available immediately um, right now because it's already, you know, we recorded it in January. So if that's something you're interested, I would highly encourage you to check that out. It's available at familyfinancemom.com under workshops. You can access the full six months of economic workshops. We do, we record them live once a month, but then the replays are available forever. The February topic is Economics 101. Like what is economics? What is it that we're studying and why? And what are kind of the basic principles that govern economics in a free market economy like the U.S.? So, um, like I said, if that's something you want to uh, learn more about, that's a great place to do it. Um, okay, let me go back. I saw a lot of people asking questions as we went along there. So let me go back and make sure I didn't miss any. Okay, do you personally have more than one holding type in a brokerage account? Um, I'm not entirely sure what you mean by that. Do you mean like, do I have... So, for example, I have um, a 401k from my, like former employer that probably at some point I should roll over, um, but I haven't yet for a couple of reasons. And then I also have an IRA where I kind of um, rolled over all my previous employer 401ks into one account. So at my, and I personally use Fidelity. So at Fidelity, I have two different accounts. One is an IRA and then one is kind of a 401k from my former employer. I can no longer contribute to that 401k, but all the assets that are there, I can continue to like invest and move around. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question in terms, but I don't have like accounts at multiple different brokers. Everything for me is at Fidelity. So I hope, does that answer your question? Is that what you were asking? Um, next question. Keep full coverage on a 15-year-old vehicle or drop to just liability with used cars being worth more, I have kept it full coverage. So here's the way I always think about insurance. Insurance is a way to de-risk your personal finances. Yes, you can save money on your monthly premium by dropping to just liability coverage, but if tomorrow you totaled your car and you had to replace that car, you would no longer have coverage, you would no longer be getting a check from your insurance company if you only have liability coverage. So could you personally fork over the cash to replace your car tomorrow? And the reality is, is that your used car, probably whatever money they're gonna give you on it, is probably not enough to replace that used car. You're probably gonna have to buy a slightly newer car even if it's still used and it's gonna cost more. So, that's kind of the trade-off to think about. So maybe you could drop to just liability coverage and save the difference to in a sinking fund to have money saved up to replace a new car, but you're gonna have, call it, you know, gap coverage during that period of time. 
So that's kind of what you have to think through. Do you have money in an emergency fund to self-insure and replace a car if you totaled your car and had to replace it tomorrow? That's kind of the question to ask yourself as to whether that's a good decision or not. Um, and only you can kind of assess your personal financial situation to make that decision. So when it comes to insurance, yes, there are ways to get your premiums down by dropping coverage. And on a 15-year-old car, um, you know, whatever they're going to pay you out, maybe it's not significant enough to be, you know, relative to the savings that you would get by dropping the just liability coverage. But you got to ask yourself, like, do I have enough money set aside for a down payment on a new car? Can I afford a car payment? Those are kind of all the questions to consider before you make that decision. Um, so I hope that that helps. Uh, okay, next question. How to adjust tax withholdings to get back just a small amount when you get child credits? So the best way to fill out your tax withholdings form every year is the IRS has a W-4 calculator on their website. Um, and I'll link it up in my stories here when I'm done. But what's important to understand, especially if you are a two-income household, is that either of your employers only has the information about what they are paying you. And so if you just do what you're doing based on just your income, oftentimes you can end up um, under withholding because you're not accounting for the fact that married couples, dual income households get treated as combined income. So you could end up in a higher tax bracket and under withholding. You could potentially both be claiming your children and then are under withholding. So by using that calculator, it will guide you through how to claim on both of your W-4s to make sure you end up in the situation that you want to end up in. Um, and so, like I said, the calculator is the best way to do that. And I will link it up in my stories um, so that you can, you know, work through that math yourself and then make sure that you fill out those forms um, appropriately. Uh, okay. Somebody's saying, I took the recession class. It was great. Well worth the money. Thank you so much. Um, okay. I think that is it for today. And we're up close to the 30 minute mark. So I'm going to go ahead and cut it off here. A couple things to look for that I'll be sharing today here on Instagram. One, just this morning before I hopped on, they released January retail sales. Headline number, I believe, is that retail sales were up 3%. That is an improvement from what we've seen in recent months. One thing to be aware of, and I'm going to dig into the numbers to kind of see what is driving it, um, and I'll share that with you guys, but one thing to be aware of when they release these advanced retail sales numbers, they are not adjusted for inflation. So if retail sales are up 3%, um, what does that look like once you strip inflation out of it? And what we've seen lately is that retail sales adjusted for inflation are much lower and kind of approaching declining once inflation gets stripped out. So I'm going to be working through that and separating it out and I'll share with you guys what that looks like. The other thing that I'll be sharing today in response to like some of uh, the polls and feedbacks uh, from all of you is on Sunday I shared kind of stats comparing two different cities and I think anytime I do that it kind of highlights like People are often like, wow, that's a lot lower than I thought. Or, you know, sometimes these statistics on economics and what the average household looks like and things like that are surprising to people. And it tends to be because we have a natural bias to think that we are the norm or we are the average. 
And so um, I'm going to be breaking down some of those headline numbers that we that get tossed around a lot in the news headlines to explain like why they might seem low and what might be more representative and comparable to kind of your current situation and explain. And, and I think also understanding that helps us have empathy and understanding for that, hey, there's a large portion of the population that doesn't look like us, doesn't live like us. Um, and I think that that's constructive to understanding kind of broader policies and things like that. So I will be sharing that today as well. So with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and cut it off. Have a great rest of the week. Have a great weekend. And I will be back next Monday and Wednesday for live Q&A again. Thanks for listening to this Q&A replay. As a reminder, to have your questions answered, be sure to follow me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom and look for the question box in my stories ahead of each live session or join live Q&A at 9 a.m. Eastern every Monday and Wednesday. Any resources mentioned in today's replay can also be found in today's show notes.